Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you and open up your word this morning, I just pray, Lord, that through your spirit, you would illuminate us, that we would take your truth and grasp it and use it in our service to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of Romans as we continue our study this morning. And we are on verses 33 through 36. And Paul wrote this. He said, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. As I was in preparation for my sermon, and was reading John Stott's commentary on this particular group of verses, he dedicates a whole chapter to it. And the title of that chapter is... The doxology. We just finished singing the doxology as we opened up our service. And the word doxology comes from the Latin. It means to give an expression of praise to God. Give an expression of praise to God. I remember when Kathy and I were in college, the church that we attended always opened up every Sunday morning with everyone standing and singing the doxology as the choir came in. And of course, it was a huge church and it had a huge pipe organ. And to me, it always kind of set the tone as we prepared our heart for worship, an expression of praise to God. In Stott's commentary, he also quoted Swiss theologian F.L. Godey. And Godey wrote the most beautiful phrase regarding the scripture that I just read. He said, The apostle turns and contemplates. Depths are at his feet, but waves of light illuminate them. And there spreads all around immense horizon which his eye commands. Why did the theologian paint such a picturesque view of Paul's writing? He did so because Paul is breaking out in praise in these particular verses. And the reason why he's breaking out in praise is Paul is surveying at this point the extent of the letter that he is writing, what he's covered to that point. And when he 
looks back at the depravity of man in the offer of salvation to both Jew and Gentile, it causes him to break forth and break out in praise. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. It reminds me of the song that we sang earlier as John Newton penned Amazing Grace in when he wrote that it saved a wretch like him. I was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Both of those are an expression of praise. And when one attempts to understand the grace and mercy of God, one breaks out in praise. So let's use our time this morning to study, as Stott phrased, this doxology and use it as a framework to express our praise towards our Lord and King. And to begin, let me first point out some differences in translation that I think will be most helpful. In the 33rd verse in the New King James, it reads, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But the RSV in the ESV phrase it differently, and I think they phrase it more appropriately in it gives a little bit greater understanding of what Paul's talking about here. In the RSV, it's written, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. ESV does the same thing. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Not the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And I think it's a significant difference and worth mentioning because what Paul is doing here is not commenting just on the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's mentioning his riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. It expands the definition in which we're studying this morning. So with that in mind, Paul is marveling at the riches of God. Now keep in mind, he's breaking out in praise as he looks back at what he's written in Romans 1 through 11. And he's mentioning the riches of God. And if you put that in context, Paul has written the church of Rome and he's talked about the depravity of man. And he's mentioned the richness of salvation. In other words, he's praising God for his redemptive work. And that redemptive work is praising God as our Redeemer. Eaton's Bible Dictionary defines Redeemer this way. It says that one charged with the duty of restoring the rights of another in avenging his wrongs. The title is primarily applied to Christ. He redeems us from all evil by the payment of a ransom. When you think about it in those terms, the whole Bible The Bible in its entirety 
is about the redemptive work of God. You can look at it in the Old Testament context. Before God gives the Hebrews the law, in Exodus 20, verse 2, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God redeems the Hebrew people. He takes them out of slavery, out of bondage, and delivers them to freedom. In the New Testament, we can look at 1 Peter 1, starting in the 17th verse. And it reads, And you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our redemption in the New Testament is through the blood of Jesus. And if one would look not only at their own life, but also in the context of all the lives of believers at all times in history, one begins to truly understand the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And when one sees that, you can only raise your voice in praise. His richness is through the redemptive work as he continues to draw man unto himself. But he he doesn't only mention riches. He also mentions wisdom and knowledge. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments in his ways past finding out. Paul wrote something similar in the third chapter of Ephesians. In verse 8, he wrote, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There you have riches again. The unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. In other words, the knowledge of God. And so there you see those two subjects again joined together. The unsearchable riches of Christ in to make see all what is the fellowship of the mystery, meaning knowledge. Just as you look at verse 33 in our focal passage today, and you see the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Riches and wisdom and knowledge joined together. And when we think about the wisdom and knowledge of God, we have to agree that they can't be understood completely. Job said this. 
In Job 5, verse 8, But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So the psalmist in 139 basically says God knows everything about us, but we have limited knowledge about Him. He said that we can't attain it. And in our focal passage this morning, Paul is saying the same thing because as he goes on to verse 34 and 35 of our focal passage, he asks two rhetorical questions. And he took Scripture to emphasize that point, one from Isaiah and one from the book of Job. In our our focal passage in verse 35, regarding the knowledge of God, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? Now let's look at those questions separately just for one moment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Of course, the answer is obvious. We don't know the mind of the Lord. And in fact, in the 55th chapter of Isaiah, starting in the 8th verse, Isaiah writes a verse that's familiar to many of us. When in reference to God, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't know. For who has known the mind of the Lord? The only things that we know about the Lord is found in His revealed Word. And that's important as we continue on to keep that. And we're going to come back to that. In addition, we can't counsel the Lord. In the 38th chapter of Job, Starting in verse 1, it reads, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. We don't know his mind, nor can we counsel him. The second question that Paul poses Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? In other words, is there anything that I can give God that would cause God to feel some amount of indebtedness to me? Isn't it interesting when you think about that as a quick aside that Jesus 
said that many at the end of times would approach him and said, but Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. Doesn't that imply indebtedness? And Christ says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And it's true that there are people who do things thinking that God will be indebted to them. And Paul poses this question. Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Paul deals with the indebtedness in Romans 11 when he points out earlier in the chapter who's really indebted. Because in Romans 11, in verse 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Christ isn't in debt. We're in debt. We're in debt because, as he pointed out in Romans 11, 11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, in other words, if you are a believer, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're in debt. And guess what? We're always in debt. Unfortunately, in the modern view of salvation, people look at their salvation as a one-time token. And I've brought this up before. I walked the aisle. I went to this class. I did this thing. And it's a one-time event. But that is not salvation. The doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of salvation starts off, right, with our justification. But then it moves to our sanctification. And then it ends in the glorification. In other words, every act of Christ working in our life isn't just a one-time event so we can get our token to heaven. He is responsible for all of the progress in our Christian life all the way to the time until we stand before Him and we are transformed into our heavenly bodies, we're indebted. We are indebted to Him, not God to us. This should be our view of God. This should be our view. As I was preparing to come to church... I turned on the radio and was listening to Christian broadcasting. And I heard a song being sung, and it first started off with praise. And I thought, well, it's headed in the right direction. But the praise was all built around what God could do for us. When you really think about it, unfortunately, in the cheap grace camp of modern theology, the image of God is no different than the gods of the pagan world in ancient times. Because it's all centered around what God can do for us. 
And it's not in regards to salvation or a progression to holiness. That's an appropriate praise of God, isn't it? Is that if I'm praising God, not only for the fact that he called me, but I'm praising God for the fact that he is sustaining me, he's sanctifying me, and he will call me home, that is an appropriate praise of God, of God working in our life. That's appropriate. But when my praise turns to what God can do for me, financially, emotionally, materially, it is an inappropriate view of God. It's something that we have to be on guard with in our modern time. And unfortunately, in the cheap grace world, it is just this view of a token movement of God of salvation. And then the natural man takes control from that point forward. And you end up having this, instead of a praise of the total working of God all the way through our life until God calls us home. If you're in the cheap grace camp, and I would argue if you're in the legalist camp, you have a very pedestrian view of God, meaning a view that lacks vitality, it's commonplace, and it's robbed of the richness of the gospel of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. As Paul breaks forth in praise, it reiterates that we truly can't comprehend the total mind of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. If you look at the liberal camp, liberal theology, they claim to know the mind of God. How so? Let me give you an example. And this has been going on now for decades. And I'll start off with women in the pulpit. You think, well, how does that fit? Because the liberal theologians decades ago told us that God's rules for who fills the pulpit were antiquated, and that was limited to the culture of the time. And we first started off with liberal theologians accepting women in the pulpit. And now we are at the point to where some liberal denominations accept homosexuals in the pulpit. And as you think about what they're saying when they stand for a liberal view of theology, they are claiming to know the mind of God. They are saying, we know better as we read this scripture that God gave us limited revelation. If you really think about this, the liberal theologian is saying God gave us limited revelation when he wrote those words. His words were for that particular time. But now as believers and in our modern time, now we have wisdom to say that God is okay 
with something that earlier contradicted his words. That's not the correct view of Scripture. The correct view of Scripture is is that his ways aren't our ways. That his knowledge cannot be put into our context, into our modern time, that we have to rest in the word and truth of God. How about the legalist? When the legalist says that I am a good person because I do these things, they are robbing the richness of God. We don't stand here on our own morality or our own righteousness. We stand here because of the richness of Jesus Christ in his grace and his mercy. We're kept in that grace and mercy as he has redeemed us and as he continues to move us in holiness. It is his richness. I think that there's a couple of examples that points to that richness that would add some more clarity in our focal passage today. And the first one is in Isaiah 6, verse 5. I love this passage. Because as you look at Isaiah 6, 5, you see Isaiah looking into the throne room of heaven. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. And just as Paul pins his doxology and says that as he surveys what he just wrote about regarding the gospel and the depravity of man, you see that in the words of Isaiah as he looked up into the throne room of heaven and he says, Woe is me, I am undone. You also see it in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, as John describes what he is seeing, he says in verse 12, he says, Then I turn to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice, as the sound of many waters, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. In his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Both Isaiah and John. When they see God, 
They recognize the depravity of man and they recognize the holiness of God. And this is what's going on with Paul as he surveys chapters 1 through 11. He sees the depravity of man and in spite of man's depravity, he sees the wonderful offering of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Redeemer, and it causes him to break forth in praise. This should be us. This should be us, both individually and collectively as a church. We should be about the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ because we can only survey our life and recognize the wonderful gift that Jesus Christ has given to us. But unfortunately, worship has shifted over the years to where in the modern American church, the church gathers just as worshipers of pagan gods gathered to give homage to a God in lieu of what that God is going to give them. That's not how it's supposed to be. We're to be about the praise of God, the praise of his righteousness, the praise of his holiness, the praise of his redemptive work. That's why we're gathered here today. If you think about in your own life, from the moment you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, his guiding hand has been on your life. And I know I can give testimony to this as I have at times in my life drifted. That guiding hand pushes me back on the path and restores me into that relationship. It's not my works. It's not my righteousness. It's not my logic. It's the power of God. And as we come together on Sunday morning, we should come together collectively in praise to Him in a vibrant worship. Not for what the Lord can give you in temporary terms, in something that's going to get burned up anyway. Right? I mean, think about that. Every single thing that we can touch right now, everything that is important, to us from a material perspective will all be consumed by fire. You'll be destroyed. There's only one thing that lasts and that's our eternal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we should be praising Him for. Not for the here and now but for His sustaining power and for His redemptive work. It reminds me of the psalmist in chapter 29 when he wrote, Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come and exalt you. I pray, Lord, that we would have our view of worship in the proper context. 
that we would continually voice the joy of our salvation. That we would continually exalt your name because we stand before you in mercy and grace. That we would praise you that through the blood and redemptive work of Christ that we can stand before your throne in boldness. I pray, Lord, that this would be our testimony. I pray that we would exhibit something different so that the world can look and ask what is different in our lives and we can give credit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.